Hello, happy Sunday. It's been a pretty good week this week. Other than the Spurs games, which like I'm only, I guess, a bit annoyed about because Spurs didn't win. Um, everything's been quite good. Uh, start with the Spurs game. Newcastle, pretty impressed, to be honest. Without uh, Sam Maximan, just didn't really feel like they missed him much. Um, yeah, Gimares, he's he's really good. There were <clears throat> loads of occasions in that game where he just was available to get the ball, even though we had Basuma and Hoiberg and Bentancur in there, which I thought was quite impressive. Um, he looks really, really good. Uh, Spurs, not so much. Didn't really feel like we offered too much. It was similar to the Champions League game in that we just kind of waited until it was a bit too late. And I don't know, obviously the the offside VAR thing uh, was annoying. Like genuinely thought we'd won the game. But then it's one of those ones where like when you're in the ground, as soon as it goes on that bit too long, you're like, yeah, this isn't going to count. Um, sporting really good Marcus Edwards fucking hell we could do with him could we have a player like that please um, also I can't remember his name I've looked it up a couple of times still can't remember the number 15 for Sporting Lisbon was tremendous he's the one who kind of wraps the pass into Marcus Edwards before he plays the 1-2 before his goal thought he was really 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 good um, yeah just con conducting midfielders I think they're my players at the moment and have been for a little while, like Kira Walsh, obviously love her. Tiago, I just think they're the ones, they're the ones that um, that I like watching. Uh, also, was down at Palace, uh, was doing some coaching at the academy. It was quite nice actually. They had uh, loads of kids like who were members come down um, and did some. I think I did some some good stuff. Pretty different setting than I think they were used to so more than anything it was just about them enjoying having unbelievable and an unbelievable environment to play in um, met a couple of players which was cool cool for them not for me god you think you think I'm impressed or excited about meeting Palace first team players no no big deal no big deal uh, a couple of the women's first team players were down there and they were wicked Joined in with the practice, really good fun. Um, what else have I done? I've I've had quite a quite a few days where I've just been a kind of I don't know. I want to say like yoga mum, but I haven't actually done yoga. I've just been like training well and doing my hobby, which is this podcast. Done a load of reading, I guess, um, and swim. Oh, we tried David Lloyd Kensington. Don't bother. Don't don't sign up there. The like general standard, obviously David Lloyd is higher than other gyms, so that's good. But the there's a few bits of kit that they were missing. It was kind of all on top of each other because it's pretty central as opposed to these kind of like sprawling complexes. Um, so don't bother signing up for David Lloyd Kensington. Um, yeah, I'm recording this intro on Friday. Maybe that breaks the mystique a little bit. But um, got some clients and do some training today. Then I'm going to meet Luce. Then we've got a game tomorrow. And Sunday I might actually play football. 
So by the time when well, as you're hearing this, I'm getting ready to to play football for the first time in a while. So wish me luck. This is a really good chat with John Driscoll, author of Get It Kicked: The Battle for the Soul of English Football. Um, he does most of his work as a commentator, uh, John, and I really like chatting to commentators. Obviously, I've had Flo Pollock on before. Going to have her on again. Um, they think they the way that they can like explain things and describe things is really really good obviously because that's what they do a lot of the time um but there's a lot more in this book um and in this discussion i guess about coaching than i imagined there would be when i first um got it sent through um and i think it's a really interesting chat for for basically anyone who like if you say i feel like i say it's quite a lot if you like football then you'll really like this um and I think there's some good stuff in there for coaches, fans, players, like anyone who consumes it in one way or another. Um, John, thank you so much for your time. Really, really great to meet you. Um, hopefully we'll stay in touch and I will catch up with you all very soon. John, thanks so much for coming on. Really, really nice to meet you. Um, before we start, I wondered if you could uh maybe explain the origin of the phrase get it kicked uh, yes. when i read it i i just it really really made me laugh yeah so it it dates back to when i was a kid i so I, I mainly went to middlesbrough games when i was a kid but occasionally i uh, would go across to watch darlington play and i remember an old man just bursting with frustration that Darlington couldn't get up the pitch. I mean, this was years ago, so they weren't playing around at the back. They just couldn't get up the pitch. And he just, in the end, he, he just, he just all, almost bursted. Get it kicked! And he just sort of screamed with anger and frustration. And I remember it, it stuck with me for years and years and years. Just, you know, that was the the level of sophistication. And I was thinking, that's it, that's it, that's, it, that's English football. Uh, and because yeah. So that was then. And the, so the book is basically, you know, traditionalists versus versus modernizers, um, and so that that was one end of the scale. And then the other end of the scale is the story that I start with at the beginning, which is the youth team game uh, that I'm watching, and I'm seeing the, this kids, these kids, and they've been coached to play from the back, even though the other team have been coached to play from the back, and the other team are bigger and better, and they keep doing the same things and the same things, and they're ten nil down, and I'm thinking. What, what am I watching? What this? So this is the journey that we've we've come from, from you know, from there to here, and then. So the point is that you sort of think about it, and it's hopes to be. You know, my my intention was it for it to be an intelligent discussion with a load of people who know a lot about football, um, uh, examine this journey that English football has made. Yeah, I think we're in a really good position to explore it. It's funny. I was listening to Guardian Football Weekly this morning, and. They were talking about the campaign "Get It Launched," which John Bruin is <laughs> like, like Man City. I don't know if you saw any football over the weekend. City scored this goal where Edison yes. like just smashes it up the pitch. <laughs> like Harlem runs onto it, bodies are like flailing the centre back over and like taps it in. And it's like, oh, you know, why, why mess around with it if Edison could do that? And then there's part of me that wants to say, well, like, there's a reason he can do that because they do often play in a different way. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a nice, a nice way to, um, to open this up, uh, was to then think about like the kind of evolution of what is traditionally English football. And you, you, mm -hmm. you reference inverting the pyramid in the opening chapter. Um, I wonder how would you describe the kind of evolution of traditionally English formations? Maybe if we say like 
1950-ish to the to yeah. 2022. So, I, weirdly, there's some of the stuff before the, the, the for Al Ram Al, Al Ramsey is credited with the the, the 442 revolution. Now, again, if you, if you read the real details, it, it's it's a bit of a misnomer that it all changed to 442 with Alf Ramsey. But let's, let's take that as a reference point. So the WM, you look at WM and you think, hang on, that's a better formation than 442, isn't it? Because the players, yeah, let's put it simply, are spread out. And in the early days of football, you, you know, they, they would play... Well, in the, in the very early days, it was more like a rugby match, wasn't it, because of how the, how the offside worked. So that when, once the offside became something recognisable... Teams are sort of a, a two, three, five. And you think now teams play, now we've become more sophisticated. We start to recognize that the players move around. And so, you know, I've always thought that was weird as a football commentator that we put the we put the team graphic up beforehand. We put them in a formation. And I think, well, they're not going to stand in that formation, <laughs> though, are they? So so they're go- they're going to move around. So now we recognize that something like a two, three, five is is a kind of legitimate formation that a team could be using when they're attacking. So some of the so some of the formations that we used in the past were were, were more sophisticated than when we went to um, the 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 four four two because again if you uh, again I briefly referenced the famous game the nineteen fifty three Hungary game where well, we we basically recognised that we were dinosaurs that we that we'd we'd got very arrogant. Uh, refused to take part in World Cups until 1950, assumed that we were better, refused, even after that, we still refused to take part in the first European Cup as it was invented and, you know, withdrawn from FIFA and all of this. So 1953, you watch it, but there's all sorts wrong with that 1953 team. Hungary are, they're more professional. They are, so much of this book is about professionalisation of football. The Hungary team were fitter, they were better equipped. They'd spent more time working together. So England were in a, the formation. I don't think was the problem. The the you know the WM. The fact that they all stood in their formation was the problem. You know that Stanley Matthews. You watch that game for five minutes. You could miss the fact that Stanley Matthews was playing because he's out of <laughs> camera shot um, because he he stands on the wing and England are, are getting hammered and, he, and that, their best player isn't is, is having no part in the game whatsoever. Uh, so then you get to four four two. And again, the problem too many times with English football, we become we become very dogmatic. So Ramsey used a formal four four two, actually slightly more flexible than people give it credit for. But then by the time I played football, so I'm 50, I was fifty one. I wrote the book fifty one. Then I don't I can't remember playing eleven aside football in anything other than a four four two. So that was you know, and I wasn't a particularly good footballer, but that was my whole life. And so everyone assumed that you played 4-4-2. That's certain advantages to it. As one of the the the, uh, the grassroots coaches in the team says, it means that if you get a lad in at short notice, everyone knows how to play it. So you can go and play for some team you've never heard of and you already know one lad. And, he, and they say, I'll play left midfield. And you've got a rough idea what left midfield is. But the trouble is it just becomes really, really dogmatic. And then when we when we had the European ban in the 80s, other everyone else became generally became more sophisticated than we were and we just got a bit stuck and we needed to change and you know and recently we've changed and and boy have we changed whereby now no one plays 442 I mean, they do sometimes at the top level funnily enough is it's where you're more likely to see a 442 um is when teams actually need results but I mean, I don't know if you know better, Josh, but it, you know, I never see kids' teams playing four four two now. Not not the decent, not a sophisticated team. You might do in grassroots, yeah, you know, bottom end football. Yeah, now and again, it's funny you you say that. So uh, I do some coaching at Crystal Palace, and I went to watch an under 15s game, Crystal Palace against Millwall, mm-hmm. and Millwall 
play four four two all the way down their junior teams. Oh, do they? Good. Good. I'm glad it's Millwall. <laughs> yeah, which is like it's funny because of like I guess the associations and like ideas people have about the club, but also like it's a perfectly legitimate way to play. If you want your mm. teams to play like that and you coach your players to play like that, great. And I think what you said even before we started recording about the you know the the way that some of these ideas and the camps that people find themselves in, it's like well it's this or that. It's like it's mm. all everything's legitimate as long as you do it properly <laughs> that, yeah it's a good argument that isn't it because in a sense that's sort of the the nub of the argument probably the most hard line of the people i spoke to in the book was uh, saul isaacson um hurst who is a uh, well is fo- my football coach is is sort of his online stuff and he's an academy coach and he works as an individual skills coach he was the most hard line as in modern hard line as in no, no, we play properly. There is a right way to play. Almost, he didn't literally say those words. Uh, whereas some of the old, some of the ex-pros that I spoke to um, uh, were very skeptical. Uh, yeah, skeptical is probably the right word about about modern football. And basically, uh, so Stuart Robson and Terry Gibson. Terry Gibson obviously played for Wimbledon, and he explains how the crazy gang worked. And it was, you know, it was a great conversation. He's a friend of mine, Terry. So we talked about it. Yeah, you know, we've talked about it a lot over the years. Um, but people, uh, Les Ferdinand as well. You know, you know. So you're not talking dinosaurs who who you know can't be bothered to keep up with modern football these guys do watch modern football and and they're quite skeptical about that the, the fear is that it's become would become as dogmatic the other way as we were with the old 442 and so that's the argument and there are a few that Stuart, Stuart Robson will argue well hang on teams play a different way if, if you if you're one nil down with 80 minutes gone you change your style of play and Stuart's argument is well hang on if that's a style of play that's going to get you a goal what, what have you been doing for the last 80 minutes? And it's, it, it, you know, it's, so there's a lot of stuff to think about. It's a lot of interesting stuff. Um, and as, as I say, you know, I, I, I learned a lot from these guys, talking to these guys um, as, as I was writing the book. Sure, sure. No, it's definitely, it's, there's definitely some good stuff to think about. Why, and maybe from a commentary perspective as well, why do you think we, when I say we, I mean just like fans of football, why mm. do we have such a fascination with formations? Like what, why do you think that, it seems so important to us. I think it's a good question, isn't it? I think I think we essentially because we do. I think it's a cultural thing. It's how it's how we talk about football, isn't it? We use it as the reference point for for talking about football. I would say less so now. Um, obviously, Graham Potter gets a few mentions in the book. Um, he was at Brighton when I when I, when I sent it on, and he almost immediately went to Chelsea afterwards. That's it. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, to be to be fair, I also mentioned Boris Johnson. We've had two prime ministers. Yeah, I was going to say then, that's so, the other one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, I can't we, we can't be too critical of football teams for changing too much. Um, so, but he interestingly talks. He's almost post formation now, Potter, isn't he? He's almost you, you know uh, saw Thomas Frank the other day on TV. Ask him. Why do you change formation all the time? And it, and it was quite a very complicated answer. But essentially, he said, we change formations so we can do the same things within the game. And we need to change the formation in order to carry on playing the way we want to play. And he think, right, OK, <laughs> so that's a bit to get your head around. And I think I think the, the answer to your question, we it's just easy to think of that, isn't it? It's easy to think of it in terms of formation. Um, it's Thinking of football in terms of formation is probably the equivalent of man marking at a corner in that it's straightforward. You know who to blame if it goes wrong. So, you know, if, if you right winger, 442 was mainly about one on one battles, wasn't it? Or two two on two battles in, in, in certain yeah, areas. Pair, pairs of pairs of players in different places working yeah. together against other pairs of players. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're winning your battle, 
and you know if you're losing your battle. And so in a sense, the that sense of accountability is very easy. And so therefore, if you're not thinking about it in a very sophisticated way, then you're probably happy with that. And as, as the quote I use from Graham Taylor, I hate sophisticated football. There are lots of people in English football who don't want it to be sophisticated. So, you, you know, they don't want, they're happy with everyone in a formation. There were lots of people probably happy when everyone played the same formation. And then we just go and watch these battles happen all over the pitch. And we mm. understand it. Whereas now sometimes you watch a, you watch a football match and you're thinking, there's a lot going on here. Definitely. Definitely. Do you, I mean, like I, I, if I'm, so I'm a Spurs fan. When I watch mm-hmm. Spurs, I'm watching it from a perspective like, I hope we score more goals than them. If I'm watching a game of a team that I don't support, I have to be pretty clear and specific with what I'm looking for. Otherwise, there's just too much going on to actually understand everything. Like, you can't understand everything. I think that's the reason why, like, three-minute highlight packages are so successful. It's just like, we're going to give you the goals and the nearly goals because other than that, like, you can't take anything else in. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, because I've got a situation now, because I, I work for, so I work on an international Premier League feed for Sky. So, and, and we do, every week we do these highlights packages. And so I am in a situation of sometimes I'm watching games, say on a Saturday afternoon, I might, be, I might have five games on. So I'm watching more football than ever, but almost watching it in such a superficial way. <laughs> that, that it's that I'm, that I, I'm not really sitting down and concentrating enough. It's the same with the Champions League night as well. So I'll have a game on my laptop, a game on my my iPad, and and then the main telly that I sit and watch under some of the goals show on, and everything's flying at you, and it's great. But sometimes you think, actually, I prefer commentating because when you're commentating, you have to achieve a, a level of concentration that really makes you sit and think about the game. And if you ask me about a team that I've commentated on, I'll have a much better opinion of that than a game that I've just casually watch it's almost the equivalent you know if you I don't know if you ever do but if you go and watch England in the World Cup if you watch it at home if you really want to understand the game you, you watch it at home if you yeah. if you want to have fun go down the pub but if you go down the pub you you it's very hard to have an opinion at the, at the yeah. end of it you know you think yeah oh well we won it was good but you know but yeah you you have to concentrate if you want For to sure. really get, it, get the idea of the football I had that with the uh the women's Euros final I was at the game and like it obviously it was, it was brilliant. It was so much mm. fun. It was only when I got home I realized, oh, there was a controversy about a handball. I had no idea that Germany should have had a penalty. Mm. <laughs> Just had no idea. Um, too busy in the stadium having a good time. Um, the start of the second chapter in the book kind of lays out like a crossroads for English football after going out of the World Cup in 2010 with the like Lampard goal, non-goal against Germany. Would you be able to, I guess, lay out what the two options at this crossroads were to you yeah. as you saw them and maybe explain the steps that um that we then, actually took yeah, yeah. The, the then kind of premier league's director of youth like how we where we yeah. go so so um again so this is how jed roddy tells the the the, the story um he he, he, I, I, he had a conference i watched him at a conference and it was and it was it, yeah it was very interesting so it, basically, after that Frank Lampard controversial goal in Bloemfontein in 2010, um, the general public narrative was, you know, it was a real split. So there are some people, including Capello, basically said, oh, England, we, we, we were cheated. If that, we, It's obviously a goal. It was ridiculous from FIFA that they didn't have goal line tech. Um, but we lost the game 4-1. I watched that game. We were clearly second best to Germany. 
even if that had gone in, it was so so it was two two at that point. They were better than us. Um, we could have could we have got through with a huge amount of luck? Maybe so, but we weren't good enough. The the pro- the bottom line was in that spell we had not produced enough good players. So you can either take refuge in blaming either blame foreigners or blame bad luck or blame blame blame. And at the end of every major tournament, we either blame we blame bad luck, we blame. Uh, you know, cheating foreigners, or we find a scapegoat to to to, you know, to publicly pillory, like Phil Neville or somebody at the end of a tournament. Or you can take the grown-up approach and actually try to analyse how you're producing youth players. And from that came the the E Triple P, which you can see is the professionalisation of academy football. Yeah, so the elite player performance plan. Yeah. So there's always been, we've always produced players. Clubs always had youth team set up. So Matt Jackson, who worked, he's now at Wolves. Um, but uh, you know, the, the old Everton Wigan player, Matt Jackson, very good player. Uh, and a good general athlete in his in his day as well. So I remember working with Matt around that time. And they, the clubs found it really, they were split on it because it was a load of work and a load of uh, being held to account for stuff that they were already doing. But looking back on it, he thinks it's a good idea. So, and, and I think everybody involved more or less does. There are some caveats within this that basically you had to commit a load of money to it. You had to commit a load of time to it. And we're going to have certain standards, rather like schools do. You know, schools have Ofsted come in and they say, right, are you doing the following things? Are you spending your money in the right areas? And so academies are now held to account for the kind of things they do. And then the big question is, as as you then look at the England team, the England squad ahead of the World Cup, as we talk, um, has it worked? And I would say it's worked. Not, it hasn't worked if we win the World Cup because there's too many random factors in winning the World Cup. Are you going into the World Cup looking at that squad saying that we're just about as good as anybody with our strength in depth? And if 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 the EPPP has worked, then the answer to that question is yes. And if we're not, and if you think, no, nah, we're not as good as France and Brazil and Germany, blah, 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 then you'd have to say that the EPPP hasn't worked. So that's that's essentially the frame. that That's that's how I frame the debate about how we're coaching kids. Yeah, I think I think it's a good way to think about it, particularly with, like, if you, like, I don't know, the England are going to have, like, a 50-man 50, 50 pre-squad. Like, if you look at some of the yeah. players on that list, like, there just weren't that, there weren't those types of players before in the past and there weren't nearly that many types of players like that. And I, I think, I think you're right. Like I'd, I'd agree with you. I'd kind of be like, look, we're in a pretty good position. And if things go well, we might do really well. Like that's, I think that's okay to, <laughs> to look at it, to look at it like that. Um, I, I like, so I'm, I'm a football coach. I've been on, I guess my fair of, my fair share of FA courses. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I've got a grasp of like England DNA and what that is. I wondered how you go about defining that. Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? Because the, the question, so, so I did, I went down to Southampton to speak to Matt Crocker, who I think he's director of football operations now at Southampton. I think that might be, they, they change their job title sometimes, but he had been at the FA. So in a sense, he was the man. So Dan Ashworth was his boss and they wanted to do this England DNA, but Matt was the guy who basically came up with the nuts and bolts of everything. So the philosophy of English coaching. Um, now he's an interesting bloke and an intelligent bloke. So he he is not saying, like you said to me, 442 is fine if you know what you're doing, you do it properly and you're not just resorting to lumping it up the pitch. 
Um, Matt does concede that there are different ways of doing it. You can have your own DNA. It doesn't have to be the England one. But the England one was that basically we will play through the thirds. We're trying to create technical, tactical, flexible footballers who will play in what is described in the modern style as the right way. Again, I would you know, say that Matt does not say there is a right and a wrong. So that's essentially the, the England DNA. And then I tried to throw quite a few difficult questions at him about how it how it came about. And um, and then at the end of that chapter, Stuart Robson is the, is the, the sceptical voice because he basically says, nah, <laughs> we don't have a DNA. The only one who had a DNA was wrong, who was Charles Hughes with the old uh, Dr. Death of football, as they called him, who, who lumped it up in Stuart's view. That was clearly de defined. His reservation about now, about the, the the Southgate era FA, he doesn't think it's well enough defined. I don't know. I mean, I'm interested in, in your view, Josh. If if you've come through, if you know what that England DNA definition is, then I guess they've done their job well. Um, you know, if if you think you could, so you do some coaching at Crystal Palace. If you went up to Middlesbrough and coached. Would would you be able to work with those kids, or would they be doing something totally different? Um, yeah, it's, so it's a it's a really good question because I have this chat with quite a few coaches that I work with, and we like at various different points, maybe if we're having a good week or a not so good week, and this is at Palace and elsewhere. Like we probably feel like we could go into pretty much any environment and have some kind of positive impact. Now, I think a big part of that will be you know who we are as coaches, regardless of what it is we want to coach, we feel like we can connect with groups or do you know what I mean? There's, there's stuff that we'd be able to find and, and add value in. But I think like I'd say that, that I have taken on quite a lot of the stuff in the courses because it makes coaching more fun. It's a lot more fun to coach someone how to pass, how to receive than it is to not do that. And I think yeah. you end up with better coaching practices that you can then, transfer and take elsewhere and you also end up with better practices for players to play it which is obviously a huge part of it yeah and there's the so i guess you, i guess you're advocating there which is the, the modern approach that you take a slightly longer view so if it means so your emphasis goes on developing technical tactical good players as opposed to necessarily winning the next match because they the, the you know it's strategy versus tactics in a sense isn't it if you're you want to developing players who are going to be good enough to win matches in five years time, as opposed to five days time. Um, uh, some of the old pros that I speak to in the book, basically, and I, I quote Sam Allardyce, I didn't speak to Sam Allardyce, but I, you know, I, I watched him at the Oxford Union. And basically he says, no, it's all rubbish. Mm. <laughs> Everything, it's all nonsense. Uh, it's all about winning. It's all about winning games. That's, that's the point of football. You're there to win games. And so, they just haven't got time for it. They haven't got time to to be spending long periods of time and effort developing a notion of how to play. They just want to get it done and they want to win games. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, that is fine. But then like, if I think about, so the coach I was doing yesterday, I was at the Academy for Palace and they brought in basically loads of Palace members who like playing football. So I had a group mm. of maybe eight and nine-year-olds yeah. and with them for four hours. So we're doing all, all sorts of stuff. At no point did I think what's important here is that like one team wins and they win yeah, at all costs. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because like they're eight and like there were kids who cried because their team wasn't doing very well. And I just don't think that, 
I don't think that was good. And that wasn't because I was doing anything particularly as a coach. That was because like, I'm sure they've been in places where if you don't win, that's really, really bad. But yeah. you're just here to have a good time. See, for me, if I, I, the kids can be as competitive as they like. Um, it's the adults that is the problem for, for my, you know, you know, we're naturally competitive. If you and I have a game of table tennis, we'll, we'll both be desperate to win it at the, you know, it, and it's fine. Kids will bounce back from the defeat as long as their coaches, their parents and don't make a big deal of it afterwards. So, you know, the, having a, a level of competitiveness is a good thing. It's natural. And that's that your football is it's contrived, isn't it? As, as a competition, uh, it's not it's not a natural state of affairs. We we play football because we enjoy the competitive side of it. But the crucial thing is the adults have got to keep a long view and the adults have got to make sure that kids enjoy themselves. Obviously, that they're safe, first and foremost, safe, having fun and then a long, a long view of getting better. And obviously you want to win the games as you go along. But no one disputes that. Do they? No, no one. No one, yes, we we lost twelve nil. Brilliant. No, no one thinks everyone's trying to win the games. Yeah. Um, but but you know, but you know, you you do definitely get. You know, th this is the, the the nub of the. This is why I call it the battle for the soul of English football, because there are those two camps, and and you know, the the legitimate opinion in both of them are is isn't there? You know, how long term can we be? How traditionalist are we? And how how far sighted and modern? Is, is the other side of the dilemma, which I'm, I'm trying to sort of represent. Mm. No, I think you do it pretty well. You mentioned the Stuart Robson stuff at the end of that mm. chapter. He says he doesn't really rate Southgate as a coach. Yeah. But he, and he mentions some stuff about like genuinely innovating. Yes. I wonder what, what do you think he wants to see? Like, what does he mean when he mentions that? Uh, it's a good question, isn't it? So people coming up with new stuff and... So he he quotes um, he quotes John Cartwright. Now I, I in, in a sense I was lost with John because I, I obviously John Cartwright was a youth coach through the FA, um, and I, I I didn't really see that the the most or the best bit that I came up with for an Englishman innovating was that Terry Venables passage. Do you remember that from the book where so he's interviewed in 1985 I think by Hugh McIlvaney when he's in Spain with Barcelona. And he described, he described gegenpressing. Now, we, obviously, we give credit to the Germans for, obviously, gegenpressing. Um, honestly, read that passage, and, and Terry Venables is describing it. He, so, you know, so English people can come up with new ideas. It just seems to me, and this, this is my view, that the intellectual energy in the last 10, 15 years has come from Spain and Germany. So the whole Pep era... Uh, this we're going to play from from the back. You know, the, if, we're, if we're a good enough team, we're good enough to take the ball from our goalkeeper and play all the way through and have good control, keep the ball in good order, as they would say, all the way through the team. Um, and and the Germans put a spin on it, didn't they, with the pressing, with the with the high energy and all of this. I just at the moment, I think what we're lacking is England, the English game, inventing a way of playing. I think at the moment, what where we are, it's not, it's not necessarily a bad place to be. We 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 grab the Spanish and we grab the German and we have professional and put it into our professional setup, uh, which is not which is not bad because we we're now we are we are employing lots of coaches. Um, my my son plays for two teams and he's got currently four FA qualified coaches working with him, so um, we we're getting somewhere. 
but at the moment we're not leading. I don't think we are, unless you, unless you have a different view, Josh. I mean, you're, like I'm interested, but I don't think anything has come out of England that other countries have sort of thought, oh yes, that's the way to do it in the way that we have with Spain and then Germany. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting idea. I think we're also at a point where we're about to see some English players like genuinely start to do some stuff that we haven't seen before. Like I think like Bellingham and mm. Foden um, and like Trent's on the cover. Like I, I, there's, and Saka as well. Like I, there's, there's some players who I think are going to be so good and going to have such a, an obvious impact on every game that they play in that they might bring about some of the sort of stuff that you're, that you're wondering about there, which I think is, really exciting yeah so matt, i spoke to matt whitehouse who's a blogger and uh he, he wrote a book, couple of books in fact when i first read matt's book he was very critical of the english system he said we were way behind he's, he's now working with coventry and he's and he's really impressed with the last 10 years he says we have caught up but he made a really good point that the next stage uh he's a big fan of american sports is, is basically more flexibility more tactical uh, yeah, tactical flexibility. So players who can play different styles and coaches who can switch up styles all the time, which I guess is what we're seeing with Potter. You know, you're going back to that changing the formation all the time. It's being good enough and clever enough that if you need to, so we need to go long. You know, you know we need to play under pressure because the other ki- the other kids are bigger than we are and they're battering us. So we need an answer. So we always need answers, and the answers aren't always the same which is, again, the, the story that I tell at the very beginning, is that that coach didn't have, he only had one answer, uh, which is to play like Pep Guardiola. To be fair, Pep Guardiola used to play, as you rightly point out. Um, you know, Edison launching that ball, as Guillaume Balaguer says, he says he's not Pep Guardiola anymore, he's Joe Guardiola, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the Spanish Englishman, because he's adapted. You know, that's the, at the very top of the game. They are flexible, aren't they? The guys whose livelihood, who are going to get millions and you know tens of millions of pounds spent on them and are going to lose those jobs they adapt and yeah. so we 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 at every level of the game need to to adapt and be flexible uh and tactically and technically flexible yeah and i think with that like i don't know if you saw chelsea the weekend started with Cucurella and took him off and brought Kovacic mm. on and Potem got kind of lauded for changing changing the game when he did. And yeah, I get it. Like it's quite early to make a sub. And then there's the other part that was like, oh, well, he got it wrong in the first place. It was a terrible plan. Mm. It's like, okay. I think there's an interesting thing to think about, which is like, had Cucurella been coached to be able to do what his job was in the plan, but also be able to kind of do an impression of what Kovacic went on to do during the game, then it becomes way less of a thing because it's just like okay instead of standing here go and stand 10 steps that way and 10 steps forwards right now you're central midfielder um so, and that's so, where coaching i guess yeah so here, here's a question a because some of the guys in the book some of the old guys don't they, they they look quite fondly back at their haphazard journeys into football um so they they all you know they play for different teams different coaches it wasn't a pathway in the way that we've got a pathway through an academy now and I think one of the one of the criticisms of the academy system is that everybody does get taught the same. And so, if the academy coaches and the academy um, perspective, um, you know, the plan is the plans in the academies, syllabus uh, maybe. Yeah, syllabus. That's yeah, yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, so, if the academy syllabus isn't good, then the players will come out 
doing the same things and won't have that flexibility. Whereas when, when it was haphazard and everyone was plotting their own route through, everyone who came through was remarkably resilient because you had to be, because you'd bounced your way through this crazy system. And so there is a danger that you lose a little bit of creativity. The more effort that we put in, the paradox is, the more control that we give to coaches and clubs over players and their careers, the less initiative they might show. Because you hear people now all the time, no leaders in the game, no leaders in the game. And they mean the Tony Adams, Stuart Pearce kind of leader. There are other ways of being a leader, but you won't be a leader if you get told what to do all the time. So I think the very best coaches now, I think they're aware of that. I think good coaches now are aware that they have to start pushing the responsibility back the other way. Mm. In the uh, England DNA chapter, there's a story where Steve Cooper's coaching England at halftime. They're 2-1 down and the kind of players come up with the game plan mm. for the second half. Could you maybe explain like, what the context for that happening was and how you think we got to a point where that was even a thing that could happen? So, again, so Matt Crocker describes this, how he, he basically, his job was, his job was almost what I've done in this book, which was marrying the traditionalists and where you want to go and looking at that clash between them. And so there is the, as he described, the, the old model of, I, I'm the expert coach, I'll tell you what to do and this is how we're going to do it, versus the modern way, which is basically, oh, I've, I've talked to Dan Machichi, basically had this thing. If he talked too long, the kids could just go off and start playing again. And it was, <laughs> and so it was quite a good way. And so Steve Cooper was very much in the modern sense that, so they were, they were struggling at half times against Spain in the final, isn't it? And, and basically he was so delighted that the players essentially said, right, so this is what we're going to do. And I've heard that again. I can't remember where I heard it recently from a professional uh, coach uh, recently who basically said the players did half time. Uh, and I think that's so much stronger, isn't it, than the coach, the old days. When when a football commentator, when a team was coming off and they were 2 0 down at half time, the commentator would say, Oh, they're going to be smashing some teacups. <laughs> um, you, you know, hopefully we're a bit beyond smashing teacups. Hopefully you get to the point where the players understand football themselves so much that with a discussion, they can say, Right, we need to start doing this, this, and this. And in the end, the manager might be the, the moderator and said, OK, so that's the final plan. This is what we're going to do. But you can't just be all top down, can it? So that's that, that was the point of that Steve Cooper story. Yeah, it's a nice one. I also remember when uh, Real Madrid beat Juventus in the Champions League final. I can't remember which year. 27, they won so many. It was 2017, 17. Have you seen the video of Zidane at halftime in the dressing room? No, we'll go on. It's an interesting one. I'll send it yeah. to you. Essentially, mm. like they're coming at halftime and they're it's one one but they've been they've probably just about been better and all the players are kind of sitting around and they're like having little chats here and there and Zidane just kind of leaves them for the first bit and Sergio Ramos is going you know come on boys keep going this sort of stuff and then Zidane comes in and he's like okay and like does this like gather around mm -hmm. and he basically says like uh the key to winning the game is getting the ball wider quicker essentially yeah. uh and that's it. And they do that in the second half and they win and they score goals from like cutbacks <laughs> yeah, yeah. down the side. And it's handy when you've got Modric that's, that's and the difference, isn't Ronaldo. It? Yeah. And, but like that, it, I thought that was like a nice parallel. Um, and maybe yeah. some of that kind of stuff that he'd have got, obviously from being a great player, would have helped him in that moment as well. But the idea that like the players are on the pitch so they can have a say is a pretty good idea. 
Yeah, well, that's that Zidane Ancelotti school, I would, which is different from the Pep school, which is very sort of more interventionist, if you like. Uh, Ancelotti's had success, a huge amount of success, basically taking really, really good players and trusting them. Um, and yeah, it, it it does a lot of it comes down to the quality of the players, but obviously that doesn't happen by magic. You know, Real Madrid, you can go out and buy a player. Um, and so, yeah, and, and also you've got the players of the intelligence of, of Luka Modric. Luka Modric would be an example of a player that I would love England to produce. You, you know, when we lost that 2018 final, sorry, semi-final to Croatia, they had Rakitic, Brozovic, Modric in the centre of the midfield. The brain power of those midfielders, that's that's where... I think, And I think that's the journey we're, we're, we're heading towards, and that's where we want to be as England, producing that level of intelligent, flexible player. Yeah, and I think if we compare uh, like who played in midfield for England in 2018, you know Henderson. Don't get me wrong, like good like Henderson, uh, Deli Ali, Jesse Lingard, like mm. Rice, Bellingham, Foden, like that just is an upgrade. Um, and I think, yeah, if if we think about the like evolution where we were, where we're going to all that sort of stuff, like I think, I think, uh, I think England fans should feel happy and I think the coaches who've done the coaching can be pleased and I think whoever like inputted I guess into the process of it all should should feel like we're in a in a good position um I wondered as well John about the maybe from a commentary perspective as much as anything where you think that like stats and data come into this discussion about the soul of English football because I feel like there's a whole element there as much as there is with the coaching and the formations and the style of play yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? There's a, there's a chapter on this in the book where I, I must thank John McKenzie, who was at Analytics FC when I spoke to him, and Daniel Hutchings, who was, who was a, as a match analyst, and he worked in the low divisions. He's now gone to live in Canada. Um, so they, they those two guys helped me with this. It's and it's and yeah, it's fascinating. There is obviously you've you've got to keep up to date with the stats. You've got to move. Um, but as John McKenzie, one of the the wisest things that anybody said to me for the book is basically. You've got to consider that all this professionalization, all this change, everything that you, when you move on, you leave stuff behind and you leave with it a sense of loss. And so there are always people who don't want it. They don't want to know that their football has been worked out by astrophysicists. So how how much do we do as a commentator? It's a really good question. So when I when I commentate, I now go on. So I go on to the like FB ref and try and have a look through and get some stats, but I'm very conscious that most people don't want to hear it. I think is probably where we're at at the moment. So I think it's a, it's a uh, clubs are using it. They're they're quite reluctant to tell you how much they're using it. But I think for obvious reasons, I think there's a competitive advantage to be gained. Um, but you know, very clever people are, are are trying to work stuff out. So John was telling me now, for example, they're trying to work. It's very hard to assess a centre back by stats because the the best things the centre back might do is to stop an attack from ever happening. So there's no data point happens. Um, so they're now trying to develop tracking data to try and f- figure out where the best centre backs move and track that to them not conceding goals. Um, so commentators, you don't want to be you don't want to be a dinosaur and say oh this is nonsense snake oil it's non you know it's rubbish you know xg what's that? Mm-hmm. But at the same time. 
it, it, there's a little bit of uh, the new baubles sometimes and with all new developments and stats i think people it, with the data in world in general we we there's a danger that we read an awful lot into a relatively small data set that we start drawing conclusions that aren't really there because it seems fun and easy to do so so you have to be very wary so wary that that sense of loss um when you start using data and wary that you're not reading too much that you're reading stuff you're drawing conclusions that just can't be justified on the amount of data data that you're looking at because again as we said at the beginning it's a very complicated game so there's an awful lot to interpret and so just you know it's it's, it's i guess i write a note of a note of caution as as we go along the, the, the chapter's called don't shoot and it's obviously a reference to potter's um you know where he got, he got with some justification a fair bit of mocking because he complained gently about the Brighton fans urging his players to shoot uh, but you know that's where we are uh, that's modern football for you isn't it where a football manager is saying oh, I wish the plan I wish the fans wouldn't tell us to shoot all the time you know, yeah 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 so I remember watching Brighton last year they played Spurs and I guess on the surface it was like oh they've come away from home smash and grab 1-1-0 against the top six team and it just wasn't that at all like that is one game where I can say that like I watched it live, saw what happened, like felt what was happening. That my team didn't have really a chance to win the game. Then watched it back and uh, and the highlights, and I was like, yeah, like that's a that's a really well coached team who have just had a plan, executed it. They put Basuma on Kane. Kane did nothing the whole game, and it was just it was really like although I was like annoyed that my team hadn't won, it was really satisfying <laughs> to know like oh someone's just done a really good bit of coaching and it's paid off. Um, and I think he's going to be like, he's going to do some cool stuff with Chelsea, I think. Yeah, I think so. But there's, there's another example. You see, as, as you have, because you coach and you talk about football, that level of sophistication that you've added into your football experience does slightly reduce your your fandom a little bit in a sense that mm. you're not, you didn't, you, you didn't go home and get all angry about it. You went home and thought, you know what? I'll have a think about how Brighton played. It, you know, so that's that's what I mean about that that sense of loss sometimes, and why people don't want this level of sophistication. Which you know, the people don't always want to hear all of this. I just think it's reasonable um, for those of us who are who are interested in the minutiae of the game to recognise that some people aren't, and to you know, those of us who want change, I think it's reasonable to recognise that some people don't, and yeah. you've got to. I'm not saying you abandon it. I'm saying you gently ease people along <laughs> into the sure. modern world. Yeah. yeah. So you said that you don't really feel like people want to hear that sort of stuff when you're commentating. What What do yeah. they want to hear? Um, oh, it's a good, that's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> what, the, the one bit of advice I would give to commentators, and I wish I could take it myself, is to speak less. Um, I, I honestly think... Uh, I, I hardly ever sit and watch a football match and say to myself, oh, the commentator is not saying enough. <laughs> um, I, I think quite often people want you to say not a lot, but it's so difficult to, to be perfect about it because the other thing that you've got to consider is that so many people, people are watching the games in different ways, aren't they? So you might be, you'd be if you're commentating a Premier League game, you will be conscious that there's a team of people back at Sky cutting that into you know, five, three minute highlights packages and stuff. So they want you to, they want you to shout British and, and, you know, away you go. But at the same time, someone else might be trying to consume everything. Um, and other people are just basically not really watching. And so you, the, the commentators just 
rambling on in the background. I think my, my view, and I might be doing myself a favor here, I think the best commentators are probably not ones who grab everyone's attention all the time. I think if you get through a game and no one has said anything on Twitter about a commentator, he's probably done a good job. They've probably done a good job. Um, you know, um, you want a level of detail. There's a, I think fans get ridiculous, particularly on Twitter, where they say, oh, such and such a commentator is always biased against us. And they, no, they're not. It doesn't happen. It's nonsense. Um, yeah, don't talk too much. But we, we, we have to become slightly more sophisticated. And I think the co-coms have to move along as well. And they have to spot things, such as formation changes, such as it would be nice, rather than just, um, oh, Chelsea are good, aren't they? You need a bit more than that, don't you? And I think the, the best code comms do do that, but I think I think we're a way to go yet. With you, you, you know, well, the thing is, the game changes so much that code comms, if they're not careful, are left behind. They're left behind in a game, you know, in an era from four four two. Get the ball in the box, get it up the pitch, win your battles, kind of era. And the, and they've got to move on with that. And I think the best ones do. You look at Neville and Carragher's stuff on Sky. It's excellent. You know, it, it's excellent. They're, you know, they're, they're, you, I, I enjoy it. You know, I'll sit down and watch. Okay, I'll see what Jamie Carragher's got to say. And that's there's a, that's that's the, you know, I, I think there is some really good stuff. Mm. Yeah, I I particularly like it when it's current players or maybe players who've just come out of the game because there's a level of just like freshness and also yeah. like proximity to what has. The, there's a balance for them. Yeah, because what you, the balance there is, realistically, you've got to be a good broadcaster. And the danger is guys who've just come out of the game um, don't say a lot, and don't quite know how to articulate it. Whereas you look back at, I know, at Tony Gale or someone, now he hasn't been in the game for a while, but he can speak, he can speak, he can speak for England. So you, you, that, that's the balance sometimes, isn't it? You know, as, as, you, as, as the guys get older, they've got to keep relevant. But the guys just coming in have got to find a way of being good broadcasters because it is important to be a good broadcaster. It's not just it's not just okay to be a good footballer because it's a different job. Yeah, uh, and then now and again you get the like. like I remember Dominic Calvert Lewin did like Monday Night Football once when he, mm-hmm. he I mean he's injured all the time. Maybe at some point when he was injured, <laughs> and I remember thinking like, oh that like that was really I remember really enjoying it because it was like someone who's current but is also probably further along in terms of just the way that he was like talking and thinking about the game. I've felt this with James Madison as well when he's done interviews. You're like, oh, you're actually someone who like, you properly think about this sort of stuff. That was really good. And, and in fact, I quote uh, a little James Madison uh, exchange where he, where he references the the analyst that they've had at, at Leicester um, because he is he's clearly a young man who's thinking a lot about his game. It's fascinating. But just, just, to, just to prove that it's not a, fit, a fixed science, in the second bit of that quote that often didn't get quoted very often, he says, I am just sort of smelling where the goals are. <laughs> so he's right, okay. So he's not a science. If yeah. you, you know you, we haven't got there yet, if you're still smelling where, where where to run, then there is still a load of instinct, um instinct in there. But yeah, I hope we get the next generation in. The difficulty is the practical difficulty that BBC local, you know, the local radio and look commercial radio, that was a great. Um, breeding ground for for the next generation of cocoms, um, they can't afford they, they can't afford the rights, that, let alone to pay James Madison for his for his for his for his time. And so you haven't got that generation, the Tony Gale, uh, Andy Hinchcliffe kind of generation who spent time in local radio, get, getting good at it, becoming good broadcasters. So you know, 
again, like life, like football, we move on, but you've got to be conscious that you're losing stuff as you go. Mm. To to wrap up then, uh, I want to talk about the front cover of the book because yes, it's a really yes. like striking image. So you've got, yeah, bandaged, bloody head. Uh, Terry Butcher, like pretty iconic image that I'm sure everyone's got in their mind. And then you've also got Trent Alexander-Arnold and Bukayo Saka down the bottom. And maybe with those characters in mind, like, who do you think is currently winning the battle for the soul of English football? Oh, it's definitely the latter two, isn't it? You, you know, Butcher is where we came from. Alexander-Arnold and Saka is where we're going to. We went for Trent and we went for Bukayo Saka on the front, just as, as a representation of the modern footballer. So Saka, say Saka in particular, super intelligent young man, tactically flexible, can play, play right wing, play up front, can play as a left wing back if you need him to. So that's where football is definitely heading at the top level. But contrast that to Terry Butcher. So Terry Butcher, it's an iconic, iconic image, isn't it? The blood coming out of his head, which in that picture merges with the St. George's Cross. So it says so much about where we were, that that, that was the heroic, iconic image of English football. But as, as somebody says to me in the book, is that we can't just be about that. English football has got to be clever and tactical and flexible. By all means, have bravery as you go. You know, by all means, have patriotism. By all means, have heart and passion and all of these old, all of these old things that aren't necessarily old-fashioned. There's nothing wrong with any of these things, but it can't just be that. So we've got to, we've got to move from the butcher to the sacker. And the the hopefully the words of wisdom throughout the throughout the course of it is, but don't throw the old away. Don't don't say that Terry Butcher is not your hero because he wasn't as technically he wasn't a techni technician or as flex flexible a player as as Saka or Trent. Th these those guys were heroes, but we've got to move on to the modern world. Yeah, really really nicely put. Um, I really enjoyed the 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 book. Like I say, it was very it was very it was a lot more about like coaching than I thought it was going to be and I think that's probably right. why I enjoyed yeah. it so much yeah that's great thanks so much for your time uh, loved reading it I think for anyone who's interested in football basically if you care about watching football or being involved in football in some way then it's a it's a really it's a really good book to read fantastic thanks Josh thank you thank you